think that not having a linear narr- narrative to follow allows you to sit with what's going on inside of you. And uh, I do think that our music and ambient music in general, but you know, this is, this, this is a good way to kind of uh, look at this. My wife, um, you know, had been driving the same route to school. She's, she works with special needs kids. And so uh, she put on one of our albums and it's like five years driving the same route, you know, and she just all of a sudden noticed this tree that she's, she missed, you know, but it was it was basically the 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 slowing the music slowing her down enough and putting her kind of like in this you know for lack of a better word contemplative state where you kind of notice the ordinary and the ordinary takes on this different kind of thing and so I think with with wordless music the opportunity for that to happen while still staying grounded in your life um, and what's going on with you. And also takes you a bit like outside of it to where you're not so smothered by it. I think that's the benefit of not having a linear narrative because sometimes you have to follow a certain story when there's lyrics, you know, and you're not allowed to, to um, have your own experience. You know, I mean, you can, but you have an experience with the story that someone else wrote or lyrics that they wrote. Whereas um, we get, you know, with instrumental music, we get, you know, my dad died listening to your music. That's what he wanted to hear. Our kids first sound they heard, you know, we use this, uh, you know, we dropped acid and walked through the snow. You know, we, we, uh, the entire spectrum of human experiences. It sounds meditation like. And, you know, and I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. And then we had some close friends that kind of started saying that they were using it, you know, for their lovemaking. And we're like, look, we know you guys. Too I'm glad you, you appreciate it, but you don't need to tell me about that. Yeah, so I think that's that's the gift of instrumental music. I feel like there's maybe more to the the tree story. What what was her sort of breakthrough in noticing that tree? I think that she just realized that um it 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 wasn't even so much the experience of the tree, it was more of the experience of how much she doesn't notice. And 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 I really do think that we are lit I mean, for me at least um, when I'm really present, I realize that what I think is ordinary is kind of extraordinary because of just what's going on in this moment. I mean, you know, I, I think kind of big. And so I go back 13.8 billion years to when this all got going. And here we are, you know, and, and I think that that creating that space of slowing down enough to catch up with the speed of whatever life existence, whatever you want to call it, I think is, is a really good grounding place for all of us, especially how distracted we all are, you know? And so I think that's what, what, what she realized is just how distracted she is. Just, just driving, just going somewhere, you know, and we miss our life. It's like, like, it's like the extraordinary is hiding in plain sight. And so you can't, and you're so used to it, you don't see it. But sometimes we have to be removed from the familiarity. And I think good wordless music can almost create a new experience with an experience that you've been having all along. It just puts you in a different frame of mind. Putting things on that geographic or, or cosmic timeline, I guess, is also interesting. One, one of the things that I also started doing, and I'm, I know a lot of people were in this boat, I, I started going on really long walks during the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. Found it really useful. I live in New York City. I, I couldn't really be around people, but just getting out and walking. And one of the one of the sort of the very obvious things that dawned on me as I was doing it is, you know, I would be I'd be rounding a corner and almost ran into somebody. And the realization that, you know, if I had left a minute later or, you know, if I had stayed longer at the grocery store or the stoplight, that I wouldn't have done it and just all the things that needed to line up to make that exact moment. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that, that, that's what I think about. I just think about um, everything that went into giving you and I, this moment right now is kind of extraordinary. I mean, we're just lucky to be here, you know, with all of the things that just got us right here. And yet I'm not happy with the speed of my internet. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like we can, I find the most simple things to be unsatisfied with and to bitch about. And, and in reality, 
you know, if I'm really awake, I think that I have a sense of gratitude for my life. I, I can tell when I'm slipping back into just this kind of, you know, mundane existence, taking things for granted is because I, I lose a sense of, of, uh, I, I, I just say gratitude, you know? Yeah. Slipping back into it is an interesting way of putting it. It sounds like it's something that you've been actively working on being mindful about. I have. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm going on a weekend silent retreat this Friday, starting at five o'clock. And then I come back Sunday at noon. And then in February, I do my annual week long of silence at a place in Big Sur, California. Um, it's a little hermitage slash monastery. And I have a little private hermitage. I can have as much privacy as I want. But um, I usually, you know, I've taken I've taken music that we're working on with me there. Um, and I, I unplug from it for at least the first four days. And then if there's work that I need to do, like like sequence an album or do some editing where I need to get rid of a song or take this song, whatever, um, or title songs. Um, I find that after four days of sitting in silence, the silence ends up working on me. You know, the first day or two, uh, it's, it's really difficult because you just don't realize how much inner dialogue you're having with yourself and how much you just reach for the phone, how much, I mean, it's just so, it is so revealing just to how distracted and how busy and active I am. And I think there's a big difference between just activity and uh, intentional action, you know, and how I'm just caught up in activity. And so getting away and doing uh, my annual six days of silence is something that um, this would be my 10th year to do it. And so, yeah, I I do with intention work on those things um, because, uh, I live in sound, you know what I mean? And and so I'm constantly bombarded with it. And and to unplug completely is really scary the first two days. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure people live alone and all of that, but like, I'm talking like, I have no choice but to be unplugged. There's no way that I can get a signal anywhere. So I'm just there. And, and my wife understands that the people know that I get everything set up. Like I'm gone six days. You don't, you don't talk to me. I don't see you. Whatever happens, happens while I'm gone. It's kind of uh, shocking to move from that space back into the world um, without, you know, feeling a little bit of a disdain for how much is going on and how you're overloaded by it. But I've done it enough now to where I just kind of understand that there's there's a, a process of of moving back into it, you know. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that there is some intentional work on my part to try to to cultivate that kind of silence. And then usually I, and I have some daily practices that I do too, you know, they tell you if you fast that you, you have to ease into it or if you detox that you you can't, you know, you can't just can't eat a hamburger the next day. Right. 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 What does it mean? What does it mean that the silence, what does it mean for the silence to be working on you as you put it? Well, um, I guess for me, it's, uh, I become the being in that much silence. And I mean, it's so silent. The first time I went, I I, I was scared to pee. It's like, like it was like the, just, just everything resonated. Like, and so when you get in this, it's almost like in an isolation tank, except you're not, you know? And so senses kind of come alive. You're, I mean, I, I chew my food different. Um, I notice how much water, what water tastes like more. Um, I walk slower uh, and and I br- I'm much more aware of my breath because, you know, the, the thing we do all the time is breathe. Right. And the only time I'm aware of my breath in my waking life is either when I'm struggling to get it, you know, or when I slow down enough to notice it. And so silence to me slows you down in a way that makes me at least notice things that uh I am not always consciously aware of. And about four days in, I'm hyper aware of everything. And that's just for me that that I call that that's silence working on me. Like if I give myself over to silence, it's just a gift reality gave us. Like 
Silence is a gift that we can plug into if we want to at, at any time. And silence is not just the absence of noise. You know, um, it's a way to just allow myself to sit in a place where I say I'm emptying myself out, I'm just going to kind of empty myself of all this whatever. And um, and then I get to write down and journal some things. But there's a I think there's a big difference between me doing like a 20 minute sitting meditation versus six prolonged days of immersion into this, you know, um, and that will work on you if you let it. But it is also quite literally an absence of sound, but it's yes. an absence of sound that we don't notice. And it's funny that you do it in Big Sur. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I live in New York City now, but I'm from California. Oh, okay. And I went to school in Santa Cruz, which is not far from Big Sur. Yeah. And I had been out here for a couple of years and went back to Santa Cruz for the first time and really went into the middle of the sequoias and it was yeah dark and it was quiet. I mean, obviously there's, there's always going to be some sound unless you go into yeah. uh, one of those rooms that makes you hear the, the, the blood in your ears. But, yeah. um, but it, it, it dawned on me how ubiquitous sound is, especially in the city, but uh, not only how ubiquitous sound is, but how good we get at tuning a lot of that sound out. Right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that coming back from something like six days of, of being, cause, cause where this place is, it's away from big Sur proper, right? So you still got to go 35 to 40 minutes away from big Sur proper. And it's, and it's just this little, it's called new Kamaldolese hermitage. And like a guy, Pico, Pico Iyer, I think is his name wrote a book on silence and he wrote some other things um, um he used to stay at, at a monastery where um leonard cohen was was a monk um and so uh his house i think burned down or something and so he ended up staying at this place and there you know there's monks there you know what i mean and, and it's like they they fix fix your meals and it's a communal meal but you don't sit with anybody you just go up and get your food and go back to your place and is is it a temple is it buddhist no no it's 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 catholic but the last time i was there they had a of it's it's like eh, i don't want to say that it's uh like it's very ecumenical i mean it's 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 very open um yeah it's spiritual yes, versus the last religious time that I went, they had a monastery of zen buddhist uh monks come and and we sit we end every day with a silent meditation between for 30 minutes and and so it was a really good group of people, diverse, you know, all sitting together because like I said, I mean, silence is such, it's just, it's, we all have it, right. We all can plug into it. You know, it doesn't matter what you say you believe or what you don't believe. It's, it's the truth is, is that if we allow ourselves to sit in it, we have that in common and that's great. And so I know that, that Pico Iyer, whenever his house, I think is something happened in the fire, wrote his last book at this hermitage. And actually wrote about the hermitage too. It's a secret that, I mean, it's for Big Sur, it's, it's still, it, you know, it costs a bit, but it's cheaper than most places. And it's so, I mean, you're up, you have to drive two miles up to get there. And then you, you know, you come on these grounds and uh, there is a, a, a group house where each point, everybody has their own private room but they're right next to each other. And then they have private hermitage that are, that are closer to the bluff. And I always stay in one of those. And um, I love it. I mean, I just love it, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's not a secret secret, but it's amazing that something that's, I mean, that's right in the middle of central California, that something right. like that can still kind of go unnoticed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Pico's, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but um, his last piece that he wrote, I think made it, I don't know what, what, newspaper or magazine or publication it went into, but it was all about like, here's a secret. That's not a secret, you know, and, and trying to tell people to go support it. And, and, you know, they've been through a lot. I mean, they, the fires and, and um, floods, you know, they had, I mean, Big Sur, you know, losing part of their highway that cuts them off. You know? So um, I'll be going, I'll be going back in February, you know, you said anyone can access silence, which which is, you know, is true on the face of it, but it's also kind of this wild thing about the world we live in that you 
for a lot of people, you know, obviously, certainly in the United States, most of the people live in cities. Yeah. It really isn't possible to find actual silence in that way in a city. So it's, it's such a strange thing to think of silence as a commodity, as something that you have to pay. In this case, you know, I don't know what it is, like, a, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks um, to go do. It's wild that silence is sort of cut off from the population in a way. And, and also just the, the absence of light, too. I mean, it, you know, I, I, I get out of the 30-minute sitting meditation at the end of the day. I walk out, it's dark, and in 20 minutes, I can see uh, I counted 16 satellites. You know, I don't get that in the city. You know what I mean? You, you, when I just, I, I just lay down on a bench and just watch the stars, and, and it's amazing how much – and that's what I mean. It's amazing how much we miss. Yeah. We just miss a lot. I mean, in those cases, it's because like you can't see. It's not that you aren't paying attention. Right. It's that you just can't see. That's right. But I think if you're immersed in that environment, you don't get used to you, – you, you get out of the habit of looking up. You know what I mean? Because there's nothing to see most of the time. Yeah. Um, I do know that there's like a, a – I can't remember what it's called, but it's the Zen Center of New York. But they, they practice meditation right on a busy street, right in New York City because they're trying to get you to understand that – this is not just about the absence of sound that silent, a silent state that you can carry with you can be worked on and cultivated if you do some work on it. And I don't mean that, you know, in other words, you can be around sound and not be attached to what it's doing to you. And, and I don't know how to do that because I am, I am a sound guy. You know, I pay attention to everything, but that's something that, that they do. Um, they intentionally decided that, uh, yeah, anybody can have a, a silent moment when they're at a Zen monastery because they're in the middle of nowhere, but try doing it in, in New York City, you know? And so they, they started this Zendo right there in the heart of the city and, and um, they practice meditation with the blaring sirens and the honking horns and everything, you know? It's funny, this this mechanism that we, we've we evolved as humans that effectively helps us not lose our minds, you know? And, and I, I assume that you know, if you, I don't know, got in a time machine and came to 2023, that it, you would, it would drive you crazy for, for a period of time, but I, I it's a double-edged sword, right? It, you know, it's, it's, it, it's good if you're able to sort of sit in a noisy place, but it kind of numbs you as well. Yeah. yeah I agree with that. I, I'm not one of these guys. I'm a both and kind of guy, you know? Um, I'm not thinking that we all need to go join monasteries, you know, definitely. I, I, I like the convenience. There's a lot of sacrifice that went into giving us, you know, culture and society and all of that. And, and the things that we have that most people for most of human history had to worry about, and we don't have to worry about, you know, so there's a lot of leisure and luxury that, that, um, most people that preceded us do not, did not get to have like we do, you know? So, I'll be honest with you by the end of the six days, you know, yeah, I'm ready to get back and, you know, be able to enjoy the, the, just the simple convenience, you know, you're in Nashville. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and you're in Nashville for a reason, you know, right. you could probably doing what you do live just about anywhere, but you chose to live in a city. That's right. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, it, it's because people that do music are here. There's a lot of studios and also it's an incredible amount of convenience and exposure, you know? So, but I will say that, you know, my wife and I have a little bit of property somewhere on, on a mountain um, that we plan on trying to build some little place that we can just get away, you know, and unplug. Within the last few months, after years and years of trying, I was finally able to get into a regular meditation practice. Really? And yeah, I um, yeah, I, I, I I'm doing it for 15 minutes a day in the morning now, which is big for me. Yeah, I think I, I suffer from a lot of anxiety. Um, I, I might have a touch of a, an undiagnosed ADD too. Uh, and it 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 was so for so long until finally it clicked. For so long, it was just. Like I, I sit with it. I have a timer. I'll have some like, you know, some music because I actually do it at my gym, which is very less people powerlifting. It's 
incredibly loud, but I, I just don't have the space or anything else in my apartment. But I've got, I've got a timer that dings, you know, at 15 minutes now, it was five before and 10 after that. And I remember when I used to sit for five minutes, I would just be waiting for it to ding. And now it'll come up on me and I'll ding and I'll be like, ah, I could do this for, I could keep doing this for a while longer. Yeah. 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 The only way not to do, to do meditation wrong is not start it and also stop it before your timer goes off. Because those are the two ways to screw it up. There's there because you don't, you know, just the fact that you just sit for 10 minutes and think you're wasting your time. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like someone said to me, it's like, you know, I think I probably had 10,000 thoughts, you know, um, in a span of five minutes and where I had to return to my breath, where I had to return to my breath. And, you know, it's like, well, that's 10,000 opportunities to come back to the present moment, you know, and you didn't fail anything. No one's sitting around judging you and telling you that you did it wrong, you know. Um, and a lot of people, I think, that think they can't do it or won't do it probably need it really bad, you know. I think a lot of us have been there, but we we have a lot of methods for numbing. That's right. That. That's right. And you a don't know of- what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know, you know. I mean, I think probably some of the some of the things that we suffer from is that a lot of us have opinions about experiences we never had. You know, we just have these assumptions about things, and um, and you just don't really know what meditation is going to do. And and if you start it for a week, you're not. I mean, it's it, at least a month, at least a month before you start getting any kind of benefit from, you know, the time off the cushion. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing for me about the timer early on is. It wasn't even, it wasn't about ending it before the timer. It was about me opening my eyes and looking at the timer because there's no way, oh, uh, you know, I didn't hit that button or something because this has been way longer than five minutes. I get it. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I still get that way. I mean, I still get that way. Last night I was meditating and, and about five minutes before the timer went off, I just kept looking. I open my eyes and look, and that's a no-no. You know, that's what they say. So unavoidable. You know, when when you first start doing that to it to a certain extent. But I I, I do it, I do it in the mornings. It, it's you know I'll I'll go for a run and then do it. Um, do you find it's useful for you at the end of the day? I do it in the morning, but I also the the what happened with uh, the pandemic when it hit. I had some friends that are you know they do retreats. One guy goes to a Buddhist place in there, in New Mexico, and um, we just started getting together on zoom at nine o'clock every night. And we just would set a timer at 20 minutes and then we would end and we just wave at each other and that's it. And so we started doing it and we've just continued doing it. And I find that it is good for you at the end of the day. Um, if you go to a structured monastery, they call it the final sit of the day. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, you're washing whatever happened in the day. You're just letting it go, letting it go, you know? And so, I don't know that I would be doing it as consistent as I do at the end of the day if I didn't have some of that accountability with guys, with a couple other dudes that I get online with. Accountability is kind of the key word there. I have a friend who she she started posting on Facebook that she wanted to do it recently, and I couldn't really wrap my brain around the value of meditating over Zoom. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just it's just you just sit there and and that's it. I mean, you you show up and. A timer goes, I mean, a, you know, a little gong, boom, and then you just sit for 20 minutes. And at the end of it, you just, you know, that's it. And you're out. But the value is that accountability or is there some value in just knowing that you're doing it with other people? I think that most of the time it's accountability. But then sometimes, depending on what's been going on during the day, it's just nice to have mm. someone that you know is sharing this time in the same way that you are. So it's back and forth, but most of the time it is the accountability Um, because I always struggle with end of the day type of, uh, I mean, I'm just ready to end my day. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And, but um, there are times like when I know it's coming up at nine o'clock and I just think, Oh God, you know, but I do it. And that's the point of doing it is just to do it. Getting back to this idea of kind of, of numbing, I guess maybe a better way of framing it is, is shortcuts is trying to sort of short circuit your brain or, you know, using whether it's drugs or alcohol or, you know, something healthier. Sometimes it is music or, you know, sometimes it is, you know, movies, but really finding a, taking the easy road in an attempt to get some of these benefits. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, in, instant gratification is kind of like what we're used to, you know, in this day and age. I, I mean, uh, you know, I've been sober eight and a half years and I just, uh, you know, I wish everything worked like whiskey. You know what I mean? It's like just a quick, get me there fast, man. You know, and I stopped drinking about three years ago, just on a whim. I still have this, this amazing collection of whiskey over there. Yeah. And it kills me. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so for me, it's, it's like, I realized that I can have that mindset about a lot of things, you know, I, I want maximum benefit with minimum effort, you know, and, and, um, you know, taking four pulls off of, you know, slugs off of whiskey, uh, can wash the day away really quick and really easy versus getting on zoom at nine o'clock and sitting for 20 minutes. <laughs> there were ways then it was working for you, but ultimately what made you stop? Uh, I just had to stop. I had to, I mean, it, it got out of hand. I've struggled with that since I was very young. So yeah, I mean, I, I did a, you know, a lot of drugs in my teenage years and, and then uh, when I guess, you know, around I had a neck surgery in 2013 and before that I was doing like pain management, you know, and I really wasn't, you know, I, I'm not like, like a guy who likes that kind of oxy and hydrocodone or whatever. It just you're self-medicating. Yes. And so I started drinking with that and. And actually the first time I went to Big Sur, that was the whole purpose that I went. I wanted to clean out. You know, I had every intention not to drink for five days before I showed up there, but that didn't work. I, I showed a up a place to try to do that. Yeah. I showed up hungover at the airport and then decided I was thinking I wasn't going to go and then decided that I would go ahead and follow through with it. And about the third day in of sitting in silence and, um, you know, I, I, I brought, a couple of high gravity beers with me just to kind of like, you know, whatever, take the edge off those first couple of nights. But about the third or fourth day in, um, I just, you know, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's quoted way too much, but it's that Mary Oliver quote of like one day you knew what you had to do. And so you began. And so I just decided that I wanted to make changes. And when I got back here, I struggled and decided to do an outpatient treatment. And um, that was June 17th, 2014. Um, and uh, actually it was 2014 when I had the, the neck surgery. That's right. That's right. 2014. So um, yeah, I just, I just realized it's not serving me anymore. The way I grew up and where I grew up and what I, what my home life was like, I think that, that was something I turned to, to kind of get me to survive that. And it worked for a while. I mean, I don't think that, and I'm certainly not against drinking at all. It's just, doesn't, it's just not good for me. You know, I'm, I don't, I can't do it anymore. Um, I passed a point where it's like, I don't have a good relationship with alcohol anymore. So be it. That's all right. You know, I think it, I can't moderate. Right. I, I, I tried, I tried every, I mean, I tried moderate, I tried switching to this and switching to that and, moderating this and moderating that. And, and I realized that that's just not going to work for me, you know, and guess what? I have had plenty of moments when I've been drunk. I don't, you know, it's not like I've missed out on something. <laughs> you know? Obviously drinking is integral part to socializing your twenties, especially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are certain things that the body can take in, in your twenties that you can't take later. That's for sure. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, and it's just, it's just been, it's just been really, uh, I, I don't think I really started taking self work on myself really seriously until I, with intention decided to not just quit drinking, but make a lot of changes in my life, you know? Um, and, and I also just, you know, um, realized that I can't figure all of this out on my own. There are people out there that can help me. All I got to do is just ask for help. And I don't mean just with drinking. I just mean with different things in my life, you know, set aside the pride and the ego and ask for help. That's a really good thing to do. I hate bringing this up because it's almost, I mean, it, it's absolutely a cliche at this point, but obviously there's a lot, there's a lot of romanticization of, you know, the, the suffering artist and the people who the geniuses who had to deal with depression and the, you know, all the great writers who, who drank and all the great musicians who did 
psychedelics and all the, 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 the wonderful work that they produced in that time. Did you find that when you were really, I don't want to say getting your life together, but you know, when you were finding healthier options to a lot of these things that it had any sort of marked impact on the music you made? Yeah. I mean, I would say that in our catalog, Canotic and Raising Your Voice and even parts of Maybe They Will Sing were just pretty sober records. Um, those are our first three records. And then I'm, you know, um, and there's a lot of focus and a lot of clarity of mind, but I will say that when we made Everything and Nothing, I uh, had a really hard time making that record because I couldn't, I could not disconnect and just listen. I think for me, it's like having something that takes the edge off allows me to not be the endless critic of, of the music we make. It allows me to almost listen to it as a listener and, and get the whole picture and not just center in on all, oh, we got to do something about that, you know? So not having that was, was it took a bit of time to get used to being able to just kind of move into a place of acceptance of, of, learning to listen to music in a way that um, uh, I could do it in a way that, that, that um, didn't require that kind of, you know, taking the edge off. But uh, really the change came for me that, you, you know, you talk about the tortured artist and, and the suffering and all that and, and the kind of romanticism of darkness. I think for me, it wasn't just that I romanticized darkness. I mean, growing up, there was just darkness that I couldn't escape. You know, I mean, it was a scary place to be in my home, you know? And, and so, uh, not all the time, but you know, I had, I had a stepfather that wasn't the greatest guy in the world. And, um, and so, so, you know, certain things happen, you carry that with you into your adult life and, and add to that being creative. And, and I do think that, you know, you're, I think that, that artists are egomaniacs with inferiority complexes, you know, and, and, and that, that's kind of like, you know, I've got an ego, and I wouldn't be here without it, but I also have this insecurity that I need validation. Um, and so the, both of those can serve you well, if you just try to pretend like you've got to get rid of it completely and accept that, you know I mean? I accept that, that, I mean, it's not surprising that artists are pretentious, you know I mean? Okay, cool. You know, it's part of being an artist. It's part of being creative. I mean, you have to take some of the things that goes on inside of you very serious because that's your raw material that you're working with. But when Mysterium, when we made that record, we were making a different kind of record, more of a kind of almost electro type of thing we were thinking about. But then my nephew died and passed away. And it upended everything in my family. And I was very close to my nephew. And I could not make that record anymore. I came back to Andrew and I just said, I, I have to make a different record. And so when we made Mysterium, Universalis, and Silencia, those are the three, that's our, you know, uh, trilogy uh, and Mysterium is something that I dedicated to my sister in memory of my nephew. And when I was faced with that kind of like in your face, loss, tragedy, absence, the romanticism of darkness became silly to me. That whole thing just seemed like, you know, playing around with it, romanticizing it. I'm dark. Or, you know, all that's crazy. You know, when you're actually in it, there's no romanticism to it. It's, it's teenager just, shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just just adolescent. And, you know, let's face it. If you continue drinking too much and you're in music, those two things perpetuate adolescence, right? I mean, it's just true, you know? I mean, musicians have to be a little bit, or whatever, artists have to be a little bit of carefree and, you know, all that's great. But, like it doesn't make us the most dependable partners or the most, you know, uh, steady individuals. And, and I just realized that, that I had been sober for about two years when he died. And I'm so grateful that I was because I was able to be there for my sister and be present and not think about anything that had to do with myself and my pain. You know, my sister said, can you, you know, I said, I, I, I'll, I'll call everybody and tell them, you know, and so I had to call my dad, who is the grandfather, and I had to listen to their reactions. And and it's it's really easy when you are in love with 
you think you're in love with darkness and this persona to make other people's pain about you as if the other people's pain is just raw material that I'm gathering from rather than actually enter into the pain with those people and sit with them and, and just be with them because I'm going through my own suffering, but they're going through a hell of a lot more and I can't make it about me. I'm not the first person to say this, but has to be the number one hardest thing in the world is losing a child, especially at a young age. But I mean, it's just, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, I told somebody when I came back, I said, this is the kind of pain I'm in awe of. Like, I, I mean, this is, and I think part of it is just watching my sister and knowing that she's still going through it um, because it's the holidays and the absence just gets more and more real, you know? Mm-hmm. And the fear is that they just become a, a, a photo on the, on the, on a wall, you know, or on your phone. And, um, and so, you know, and knowing that my sister wanted nothing just to be just a good mom with family, you know, yeah. and he had a horrible disease called neurofibromatosis too. And it's, it's a tumors that, attack your nerves and your nerve endings. And because removing them is the last thing they want to do, because when you remove them, your nerves collapse and it creates paralysis. And so they let them stay as long. And he ended up losing, you know, hearing in his left ear and his face drooped and it was rough, man, you know, but, um, but I also know that this is what I say. Mysterium came out of that, but I would give Mysterium back in a second to be able to hug my nephew. And to have my sister not be in pain. This new record that we're ostensibly here to talk about yeah, yeah, yeah. is also, I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, at least if the press materials are to believe, is also coming out of a, a difficult place. I mean, specifically some of Andrew's struggles with, with his, his own family. It's, you know, it sounds like his, his mother was going through some health issues. Um, you don't want to make it about you because it isn't about you. How do you make out art? out of something like that. And, and I guess maybe a better question is where do you start? I, I think really the way I look at it is that, you know, we're meaning, we're, we're kind of meaning makers, even if we don't realize we're doing that, we're trying to make meaning, you know, through your music, just in general. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think human beings in general try to find meaning. And, and then when you're deciding to make your life in the arts, you know, you're trying to find meaning in certain things my dad actually is recovering from quadruple bypass surgery. So our parents are getting older, like, and it's weird because we're, the roles are starting to reverse and, and just the omnipresence of impermanence is starting to become real. You know what I mean? That there's like, just change is the only constant. It's the only thing that's, that's, that's that. If you want to look for an absolute change is it. Right. It's because everything's moving towards change. And I have, you know, Andrew and I have decisions to make at that. It's like we don't want to exploit the pain. But at the same time, if it's something affecting us and then we make music. Whether we realize it or not, we're thinking about them on some level. It comes out in the music, you know, and and then I think the reason that it resonates with others, even that it even though it's, it's wordless music, primarily wordless is because there's just this resonance that's in it, that, that we're dealing with universal stuff that parents are getting older, you know, and um, to breathe some meaning into that. And, and I always am quick to say, you know, I, I learned some of the greatest lessons in my life going when, when I, when I went through that, it's like, look, man, other people's pain is not just an opportunity for you to gain wisdom, Right. It's good if you do, obviously. That's a positive side effect. It, it's this, but but it's it's a side benefit, right? Yeah. And, and so you want to be able to look at things in that way, and 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 so if you're going to go through it, and it's inevitable, and it, and you can't help it, why not use it and create something beautiful out of it, or something that can be, um, you know, shared as an experience? And I think. You know, that's what we've always tried to do, you know, with our music is, is, is to try to find this, you know, this yearning. I mean, it, it, there's a yearning and a nostalgia, I think, that you kind of feel in our music. That's what we hear from everybody, at least. And there's this sense of joy and sadness combined at the same time. Um, and what, what else is there? I mean, it's just, 
I mean, I was talking to our co-producer, Chad Howitt, and I was like, what do you think about this record? You just, I don't know, man, this sounds like everything. When I listen to it, it just sounds like everything. I think that's, and he means his life. He doesn't mean it sounds like other pieces of music. No, he mean he means it. It sounds like life, you know. And I think that that I've said this before in other interviews that you know sometimes I think the music of Hammock is what it sounds like to me and Andrew to be alive. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's what we take in life and we interpret it in sound, and that's what comes out. And there's the mixture of that kind of joy and and that sadness because that's what life is. You know, uh, the expectation that you're always going to be miserable or the expectation that you're always going to be happy is untrue. <laughs> you know, it's 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 the meeting. It's the both and it's the meeting in the middle and being able to live and hold that tension, knowing that whatever is coming, it's not permanent, whether it's ha- whether it's happy or whether it's sad. It won't be permanent. There will be more change to come. As somebody who's you know scr- struggle with some depression myself, I know that that sadness can be the badness, that misery can be self perpetuating. That, that you that you can very easily prolong it. I, I call it manufacturing your own misery. You know, because because there you know, and this is a this is a cliche the thing that people say, but I believe it's true that no matter what, you're going to experience pain. Yeah. But what you do with that pain will determine how much suffering is going to go along with it. And I think that there's, there's the pain and suffering part of it is, is, you know, it's like that, that, that thing about in, in Buddhism, some people think that uh, Buddhism is saying all desire is, is bad. No, it's the attachment to an impermanent state trying to make it permanent. And I know from my own struggles with depression, that the hardest thing about depression is when it feels like an outside force weighing down on you it's really hard to not think that, well, I'm stuck now. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and it's here to stay. And the hardest thing to do is to take the contrary action. And that's, you know, getting sober, I think for me is, is what I've learned is that I have to take a lot of contrary action to what I feel like I need to do because, or what I want to do, because sometimes that's the very thing that will get me stuck and keep me stuck. You know, it's hard to get out of bed when you don't feel like getting out of bed. And I don't mean just because you're lazy or a procrastinator, because I'm not that. It's just the dreading of the day mm-hmm. to move past that is difficult to do. But when I do it, it's one more step towards taking a contrary action to get past whatever it is that I think is here to stay. In the case of your nephew, you know, I, the, the way you described it, it sounded like you were working on something else and then really you specifically made the decision to, to switch gears. Um you know, th- this one, th- this new record, something that is like, I-, I guess, so built out of or tied to w- what you're both going through, but what Andrew was going through specifically, does that mean you kind of let him take the lead? No, no. It, it, I think I think what happened is really, really, if you want to know the foundation of this record is that our record before this was called elsewhere and it was made during the pandemic. And so we had some past uh, pieces that we had worked on, but had not been able to finish. And then the pandemic hit. Right. And so we started creating that record, sending files back and forth, you know, to string players in Houston. And then we're, and Andrew and I are used to being around each other, you know, a lot, you know, I mean, we've known each other forever and we're like brothers and, um, and we had to work kind of absent of each other's face to face presence. Mm. And when it first starts and you're kind of like a, you know, an artist that kind of works in solitude a lot, you kind of think, ah, oh, this is not going to be anything for me. I'm going to get through this fine. Right. But then all of a sudden the solitude starts turning into isolation and the isolation part of it is what started wearing on me. Mm-hmm. So what what really Love in the Void is about, it's a reaction to us making Elsewhere, even though that's a, I think it's a beautiful record. I think it was appropriate for the pandemic because it's gentle. It's quiet. It's what everyone needed. But we wanted to make a more active sounding record with human beings. <laughs> and so we booked studio time. We hired players we hired a guy we've never used a co-producer and we hired him knowing that letting him because he knew us and we and you know we told him flat out we want you to push us 
But we also want you to know that we've been doing this so long, we will push back. So mm-hmm. we're not just like, tell us how to make this music because we know how to do that. We just want to be pushed. And so having human beings around us, flying Matt Kidd from Slow Meadow up to do tape machine and piano and some synth stuff and and having Chad and having two kind of Gen Z guys doing engineering for us and having a drummer that had great energy and a good presence willing to tear down a drum set and change the drum sound right in the middle of a song, having that human interaction and creating a piece like God's Becoming Memories from the ground up with each other. That's what we were hungry for, even if we didn't realize that that's what that, that we were hungering for. We didn't know how much we needed it until we got it. And so I think what happened is, you know, you got your family starting to change where you're starting to take care of your parents. Um, and you realize you've got to find connection. And so having music be more communal this time was very healing for us is what I'm saying. What the write-up describes as a uh, guitar forward, heart pounding urgency. That's just a product of wanting everybody to be in harmony, playing in the same room at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, I don't think it's all of that because Andrew and I obviously created these pieces, a lot of them before we went in and we had rough structures, you know, but, um, we wanted, here's what, here's the reality. We heard from a lot of people that they love sleeping to our music, right? Okay. We love to put your music on when we sleep. We love sleeping to your music and we appreciate that, but we got tired of that. And so we wanted to make a record that would be a little more difficult to sleep to. And also because, you know, we just felt like, haven't we all been kind of sleepy long enough living in isolation? Let's go, you know, and it's still mellow. It's still moody and melancholy and all of that, but it's back. It's hammocks early days of being more guitar focused. And, and I'll just say that this is probably the most band sounding record that we've ever done. Cause it's almost, it's all real drums. There's no programming. There might be a couple of places where we program, but it's all just everything that's done. It's done with human beings in the room together. You know, that's what's so amazing about it. Obviously there's overdubbing and there's, there's, you know, reconfiguration and editing and all that. But, but, but the, the, the genesis of it is a group of people. And I told our manager, I was like, you know, when I first moved to Nashville, I used to camp out in studios. Actually, I lived in a studio on an air mattress for about three months and being camped out and, and just staying in that environment. It's kind of like what I was saying about silence. It just does something to you after a little bit to where you're hyper-focused and nothing's interfering. And it's almost, you almost feel like this is the only thing that exists. And I think that that was really healthy for us to experience that again, especially when you, doing it as long as we've been doing it i think bad ambient music is really easy to make and i I know like not obviously not everything you make is is ambient but you know it is a piece of what you do it's really easy to algorithmically generate a piece of bad ambient music yeah well uh, you know i I could go on for that i mean uh, you know andrew and i started before there was spotify before there were playlists before there was an algorithm and so sometimes when people say that that aren't familiar with our music, they just they're younger and they come in out of the blue and they hear a, a softer piece of ours and they think, you know, oh, they're they're making music for playlists, you know, for deep focus or or music to study and relax right, to, right, as they say exactly. on YouTube. And that, that can be further from the truth. I mean, we, we we still make albums. We are album making artists. That's what we like to do. Um, and so so it it. Ambient people think that if you just get reverb and delays, you can make ambient music, right? And and but there there's something about weeding through it where you can sense the sincerity and then a sense of kind of like you know imitation, you know. I mean, and and it's derivative, you know what I mean? And there's and and there's I think the listener is for most people. I, I'd like to think this. I hope it's true can easily sense and sniff that out, you know, and, and even to this day, what we know is that when we do get on playlists with other, dare we say really bad ambient music manufactured. Yeah. 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 
when certain artists that are serious about it and have been doing it for a while or, or just even newer too, don't, don't get, I don't want to sound like old dude um, yelling at the kids, but um, I do think that there's a time when you look up and you go, who is that artist? What, who is that? I want to check out who they are because it stands out and it's not, it, it, there's just something about it. I don't, I don't, if it's a depth dimension to it or a sincerity or whatever, but my God, there's so much bad ambient music now. And I also think that Love in the Void, we decided to do something. We were like, the way we do our guitars is different than the way a lot of people do it. So we went back to what we do, um, that I feel like we do it in a unique way. And um, and we just didn't want to be uh, lumped in with all the sleepy deep focus study music, you know? One of the many reasons why I wanted to have David Toop on is because, you know, I read that book about silence that he did. And I think he basically, I think he teaches classes on silence. It's something that he's really interested in. Thought it was really interesting that there's a sense in which the pandemic has kind of, has forced us into silence. Uh, Obviously, again, obviously, you you could put on a, you could put on music, you can, you you can put on Netflix, but I think Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there, there's a way in which uh, kind of what you were getting at as far as the impact that the pandemic had on you as a band and the music that you're making is that there are that there are limitations to silence, that, that too much silence can perhaps be a bad thing. I, I agree with you. I don't know that I don't know if you experienced this, but n- not realizing how much highway interstate just traffic noise there is. And when the pandemic hit, it was like, Whoa, you know, I mean, you, it's so quiet, you know, things got a lot quieter and it was very nice for a little bit. I will say things stayed pretty loud in New York. Unfortunately, I I wasn't able to experience that. Yeah. yeah. But, but here it, it just got quieter and uh, it, it reminded me of the time that, um, the power went out and, Everything was just the lights were out. Everything was, and it was so quiet and you could see the stars, you know, and, and you realize, whoa, wow, there's a lot I'm not seeing because it's being drowned out, you know, by human beings being human beings, nothing wrong with that. But I do think that there's just like people can romanticize darkness. People can romanticize silence and, and have this kind of like, you know, it's the cure for everything. It's, 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 it's the cure for a distracted uh, culture. Well, you've clearly felt that way at times. I mean, the fact that you like go out of your way to do it for, you know, a week on end. Oh, I, I think that, I think that, that though my third year of doing it, I started ha- realizing I can't go with expectations anymore. I can't expect it to do what I, it did last time because now what I'm fig- figuring out and learning is that I can't go chasing an experience. I just have to be with what it is. Right. And, and, and so, what I'm chasing now when I go to Big Sur is not just necessarily the absence of sound. It's just more of an awareness of what strategies have I developed over the last year of coping with life that I maybe need to take a look at. 